Last week, we read the beginning of this chapter, a chapter of confession and praise, a chapter of a God of mercy and compassion who keeps his covenant of love. We continue with the response to this in verse 38. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our, and our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And now we go into chapter 10, leaving out the long list of names. Those who sealed it were Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah. Verse 9, the Levites. Verse 14, the leaders of the people. And verse 28, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighborhood, neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with the wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand. All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the Lord of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring their merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. For the bread set out on the table for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings. For the offerings on the Sabbath at the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals for the holy offerings for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at the set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit trees. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, 
are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine and olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. This morning, thinking about repentance and responsibility. Now, one of, I think, the most amazing things about Christmas is this, that God, he doesn't sit in heaven saying, I just love the world. And I'd love to save people from the misery that sin brings. Wouldn't it be great if people could be forgiven and have eternal life and be saved, but then do nothing about it? God doesn't do that. The wonder of Christmas is that as Jesus was born into our first century world, God became flesh. He took radical and concrete action to save. So the angel tells Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, to call Mary's baby Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Because why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And so that as Jesus then eats his last supper, With his friends before going to the cross, he takes a cup of wine to represent the body, so the blood he is about to spill. And what does he say? This is the new covenant in my blood. So God signs off his commitment to save with divine blood. Isn't that extraordinary? And so as Jesus dies on the cross and he cries out, it is finished. He is declaring that he's conquered the problem that we have of our sin. He's completed all that is necessary for us to be saved, for our sins to be forgiven to offer that to us. And as he rises from the dead, he is powerfully declared to be the Son of God with power, who offers eternal life in a world that is blighted by death. Christmas is God putting into practice his desire to save. His heart takes on flesh. I mean, literally takes on flesh. He takes radical, concrete action to save. So it's not surprising then that Jesus calls his followers to more than feelings for him, desires after him, aspirations for him, a kind of armchair Christianity that says, well, I love God, I want to follow Jesus, but then does nothing really in terms of a changed life. Now, our heart for God is like Jesus to also take on flesh, to take radical, concrete action, to live in the light of our great salvation. And because every believer is still struggling with sin, one of the key ways this will show in our lives is us taking responsibility to repent. 
Repent means to turn around, to turn from our sin, to trust our Savior, and in his strength, specifically, intentionally, seek to obey him in very practical ways. One Bible commentator writes on Nehemiah 10 this, In Christian life and witness, so much is lost because we are indefinite. The devil is not worried by our pious aspirations. He is troubled when, in obedience to God, for the glory of Christ, and in the power of the Spirit, we make firm, practical decisions to do specific things for the Lord. I think that's really helpful. And it's what God's people did back in 445 B.C., uh, Jerusalem in Nehemiah 10. They've returned from exile in Babylon. They, uh, they've rebuilt their ruined city and temple. And in chapters 8 and 9, they celebrate their relationship with God. They rejoice in God's kindness to them, and they grieve over their sins. But theirs is no armchair faith that says, well, I love God, and I want to follow him, but then does nothing to live for him. In chapter 10, their heart for God, it takes on flesh with radical, concrete, intentional action to live in the light of their great salvation. So having been overwhelmed by their the, the grace of God to them and their own sinfulness before God. Look at chapter 9, verse 38. It says, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. They, they were serious about this. You see, the baby in the manger Jesus, Savior of the world, Judge of the world. He asks for whole life, lifelong commitment. Not just pious aspirations about him. He basically says to us, as the people do here, your signature please. That is what God says to us. He asks for our signature. So in chapter 10, 1 to 27, it lists the names of the leaders, the priests, the Levites, who signed this agreement. And verse 28 tells us the rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God. So these were converts um, who now worship the God of Israel together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand all these now join their fellow Israelites and nobles and bind themselves with a curse and with an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. Now, written covenants, written agreements with God, they feature throughout the Bible, they feature throughout church history, in fact. People making a fresh commitment to him. I was trying to think, well, what, what, how do we come nearest to that today? And I think one of the ways that we come nearest to that, to making a formal covenant, is perhaps uh, before God, is perhaps in church membership. 
at least one of the ways we do this. Um, so as part of the process of becoming a member of our church, people have the privilege of signing their name on a membership application form. And in signing that, um, we're saying, we're declaring our personal faith in Christ as our Savior and our Lord. And also our desire to live a life that is consistent with the gospel. We're saying, I'm going to sign on the line and say, that is what I'm about. And I'm not just going to do that as a lone ranger. But I'm going to do that formally committing wholeheartedly to partner living out the gospel, serving with other Christians here at Binscombe Church. That's what we're doing in becoming a member. And such formal, radical, concrete, specific, and intentional commitment to Jesus' people and to his gospel is at the heart of living a life of repentance and faith in Jesus. Now, of course, um, giving God our signature can work out in far less formal ways than that. Maybe it's uh, a written commitment in a diary. Uh, maybe it's uh, if you do it, if you do New Year's resolutions. Um, or signing up to a, on a rotor, or um, setting up a, a standing order. There's, there's many ways that we can do this. But putting things in writing, specific commitments that essentially flesh out our aspirations, well, they save our, our well-meant desires from floating around in a spiritual void. And in Nehemiah 10, we see three ways that this was particularly fleshed out in practical ways, where uh, their heart for God took on flesh, they took responsibility for their repentance, and where they, they gave God their signature to radical, concrete, specific, intentional action to live in the light of their great salvation. And the first one is um, there in verse 30, where they say, God, I give you my relationships. Look at verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. Now, back in Ezra chapter 9, um, we looked in detail at mixed marriages. It was dealt with back then, there. God had forbidden marrying people from other nations. And the issue here was not mixed race marriages, but mixed faith marriages. God's concern was that his people be led astray from him if they married people who worshipped other gods. And Israel's history was littered with disastrous examples of this. Worth knowing that the religious ceremonies of, and rituals of Israel's neighbors involved cult prostitution, um, sex outside of marriage, and child sacrifice. So for both spiritual and moral reasons, they were not to marry people who didn't worship their God. And there were, of course, wonderful examples of people from the nations around them joining them uh, and becoming worshippers of the living God, and, and they would intermarry with them. That was fine. Fast forward to the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a go-to passage on uh, marriage in the Bible. Paul encourages New Testament believers who are married to people who are not yet believers, that you've got a great opportunity to share the love of Jesus in your family with your spouse. 
But when it comes to looking for and choosing a spouse, Paul says very clearly there, 1 Corinthians 7, they must belong to the Lord. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, as it was back then, today, in an age of sexual choice where ultimate freedom to express sexual preferences is promoted to both adults and to our children, heterosexual marriage to a fellow believer is seen, even by some professing Christians, as narrow-minded, discriminating, and asking too much, even unloving. Ed Shaw, in his brilliant book, The Plausibility Problem, reflects on the church and his own experience of same-sex attraction. And he writes of the pain and yet the joy of obeying Jesus with our sexuality. He writes this, that will mean some temporary unhappiness. Jesus' example should prepare us for this. But it won't mean sacrificing happiness forever. It will just postpone it. Or better put, it will exchange it for the genuine lasting article that we'll start to experience even now. Or Sam is a same-sex attracted Christian who shares his story on the Living Out website. And he picks up on this experience of God's goodness now in the present. He says, I'm convinced that what the Bible says on this issue is good because God is good. I'm convinced that God is good because actually Jesus has shown his goodness to me in his death and resurrection. You know, to say, God, I give you my relationships, that is not easy. That is not easy for us to do. God, I give you my relationships, my singleness, my marriage. That is big. And it's countercultural. But it is at the heart of what is good for us and good for our society that is so broken, so horribly broken by the sexual revolution. That has not delivered happiness and stability and belonging. But so much sadness, so much insecurity, and so much loneliness. So let's give God our signature to radical, concrete, and specific, intentional action in our relationships, leaning hard into his sufficient grace for us by his Spirit. Well, there's a second way that they gave God their signature, uh, to radical, concrete, specific, intentional, living in the light of their great salvation. And it's this, God, I give you my time. I give you my time. Have a look at verse uh, 31. It says there in verse 31, When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Now, we need to understand that at creation, God set apart one day in seven to rest. And throughout the Bible and throughout most of church history, believers have copied God's pattern of rest, and then worship one day in seven. With Jesus' resurrection on a Sunday, God's rest day changed from the Jewish Saturday to a Sunday. The New Testament calls it the Lord's Day. 
But I fear that over the last 50 years or so, we've rather lost this wonderful vision of one day in seven for a holiday. I mean, it's the best thing ever. But isn't it hard to do? And God has given it to us that we might rest. We might remember particularly our great salvation. We might reach out with God's grace. And we might invest in our relationships together as, as, as believers. I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that in our 21st century uh, society, increasingly, believers get scheduled to work on a Sunday. It's, that's, that's hard. And so we've got to think creatively. How does this one in seven Lord's Day principle actually work out for us personally, individually? For our, and it's there for our flourishing, for God's glory. But, but also I want to say this, that many, many church leaders will tell you how that Sunday sports, work, students studying on a Sunday, uh, social, t- social things, family events are massively impacting gospel mission within the local church and the spiritual health of church families with members present at church maybe every other week or one in three or even once a month. The kind of disjointedness that brings is, is huge. In Nehemiah's day, they made this specific commitment to keep God's rest day each week as different. And it was something that made them stand out from the nation, following this, this pattern of one day rest in seven. It's one of the most delightful and life-giving things that God has given us for our human flourishing. And yet many of us find it really hard to do. So when you say, God, I, I give you my time, for sure, that has got to be about whole life worship. Work, rest, and play, 24-7, all of it worship. But an attitude of whole life worship was never, ever meant to take away from this New Testament Lord's Day. In fact, whole life worship 24-7 depends on us keeping one day in seven. It's designed to set us up for the week. We might live the week well for God. So what does it look like? Well, Firstly, rest. Rest from normal work. Slow down. Do stuff that refreshes you. Whether that's a hobby or whatever it might be, do stuff that refreshes you. Our culture is in a hurry. God isn't. And he says, stop. One in seven. And rest like me. And secondly, it's remembering God's salvation along with God's people at church. And so we try and say to you, look, make Sunday mornings, learning for life at 11 o'clock, make them a priority and come together. And let's, let's fill our minds and warm our hearts with the truth of our salvation. We need time to do that. We're bombarded the whole week with, a, with godless values in an unbelieving society. Take time out to be refreshed spiritually. Remember God's salvation. Thirdly, reach out with God's grace. Share life with people far from God, with the lonely, the hurting, the sick, as the Lord gives you capacity. So we we try not to kind of pack out our Sundays for the whole day. So there's time to do that. And then fourthly, relationship with God's people. Invest time in church family. 
um, relate as family should so that we grow as a community who knows each other and who loves well. That involves time. You know, how we spend our Sundays says a lot to the world around us. It says volumes to our families and to our children about our love for God. Helps them see that God comes first. The gospel is glorious. So let's make this radical, concrete, specific, intentional action to live in the light of our great salvation. Stop, rest, remember, reach out, invest in relationships on Sundays that our week might be given to God in worship. Well, as a third and a last way here that um, these people gave God their signature in these very, very radical, practical ways. And it was this, God, I give you my possessions. This is in verse 31 to 39. Look, if we grasp the gospel, one of the things it does is it, it, it opens our hands so that we give rather than grab. And I mean, these people committed to caring for God's well. We see that in verse 31. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land. Now, this was an Old Testament command to keep the Jubilee year. It was actually part of their Sabbath laws. Even though they lived off the land, every seven years, they would, there was to be no planting. And the idea was that the soil was restored and recovered its natural nutrients. So rather than overwork the land, well, they were to trust God to provide. I mean, it's extraordinary. Today, we should make sacrifices to care for our environment. But also, they were committing to care for the poor in verse 31. During the seventh year, verse 31 says, they will cancel all debts. So I want to encourage you this Christmas to give generously to Tear Fund's Middle East Appeal, where people are suffering poverty in a war-torn area. But the focus of the rest of chapter 10 is these people's commitment to giving of their possessions to the house of God. What if you notice in verses 32 to 39, this phrase, phrase, the house of God there is in every single verse. That's the main focus of that. And for believers today, this translates into giving to the local church financially. Um, I don't know about you. I have been pinching myself all week at what's just happened with our, our, our fundraising. It's extraordinary. How much the Lord has led us to give to our rebuild. I, I was, I, my my math might be wrong. I'm known for that. Um, but um, I think I'm right in saying that as a church family, over the past eight years, we've given around 1.1 million pounds just as a church family. That is a staggering figure, and we praise God for it. And so what I want to do really is we skim over these verses, I want to encourage you. The Lord has moved our hearts for his glory so that our heart for God has in such a practical, wonderful way taken on flesh in radical, concrete, specific, intentional giving in the light of our great salvation. So firstly, we've, we've grasped responsibility uh, to give in verse 32. Uh, we assume responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. 
So God commanded, they give uh, to finance the temple, they, and they obeyed. There was, there was nothing remotely optional about this. Everyone benefited from the temple. Everyone must support it. Now, I make a note of not knowing who gives what or um, the details of our church giving. But I understand that so, so many people have given to your donation doubled over the past month. We've seen it as our responsibility to fund gospel progress. Second, there was plan giving. Um, the phrase, each year, it's there in verse 32, verse 34, and 35, referring to giving. There's nothing haphazard about their giving here. It was a, a regular thing. So there are high points, for sure, of spontaneous outpourings of generosity in response to God's blessing, and we have seen that. But then there was this ongoing commitment to giving, and it is our planned regular generous giving, often through standing orders, that funds and sustains ongoing gospel mission through our church. And thirdly, there's proportionate and appropriate giving. Um, so interestingly, it's not in this chapter, but we know from elsewhere in Scripture that depending on wealth, they bought a bull or a lamb or a goat to sacrifice. But others could bring two doves or young pigeons. Others could bring fine flour as an offering. But look at verse 34. It refers to a contribution that the Levite temple servants, their families were bringing, a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God. And the interesting thing about this is that it gave people who really had very little means to, a chance to give, to, to give their time in collecting wood rather than giving money. We're not always in a position to give big financial amounts. One of the most precious things we can give is our time. And so many of you do that. And we give according to means. I have loved the way that um, small change makes big changes, features so prominently in our fundraising, and encourage everyone in the joy of giving. That's been a beautiful thing. And fourthly, there's been sacrificial giving. Uh, verse 35 and 36, the focus there is them committing to bringing the first fruits of everything to the house of the Lord their God. And as we've given over the last couple of months, but also the last years, we've done so in the knowledge that Jesus gave his very self for us. All that we have is the Lord's. And so we've given of our best. We've given sacrificially back to him. It's his. And then fifth, there's prescribed giving. Um, as in verse 37, they commit to bring a tithe. It's mentioned there a few times. It, it means a tenth of their crops to the Levites, the temple servants. Now, when people come into financial crisis or are struggling financially, this is actually quite hard to do. But as a general principle, giving a tenth to God's work, um, well, it, certainly it has a long and dignified history going back before this time here, but also has throughout the history of the church. Giving 10% of income to local church mission is another radical, concrete, intentional action 
to live in the light of our salvation. And in case you're saying, well, Peter, it's okay for you to say, but what about you? Um, uh, what, about, what about me? Well, look, not only were the people to support the Levites in this way, the temple servants, but look at verse 38 and 39. The Levites, they were also to give a tenth of the tithe that had been given to them. They were also to give a tenth of their income to God too. So pastors, church workers, they're not exempt from this encouragement here to give a tenth of income to gospel work in the local church. We too have the privilege, we have the joy of figuring out our finances to give at least a tenth of what God has given through his people. And then lastly, sixthly, there's organized giving, verse 38. I'm a priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And it's basically saying, look, there's accountability here. I'm in the handling of money. Money must be handled in church life in a way that removes all suspicion and possibility of accusation. There must be integrity. And so we're really grateful for God raising up faithful finance team members who handle our money in this way. Well, we've covered a lot this morning. There's some big things there. Um, but, but here's the big takeaway, that, that Jesus, following Jesus, it's not an armchair thing. It's practical. When Jesus, when God became flesh, he took radical, concrete action to save. And he calls those who are saved, he calls us to more than feelings for him. He calls us to give him our signature. So that our heart for God, it takes on flesh in radical, concrete action to live in the light of our salvation more joyful than dutiful. So that when we say, Jesus, I give you my relationships, I I give you my time, I give you my possession, these are more than simply spiritual things that we sing about or we pray about, but then are lost just because we weren't very definite about them. Remember, the devil is not worried by our pious aspirations. He is troubled when in obedience to God, for the glory of Christ and in the power of the Spirit, We make firm, practical decisions to do specific things for the Lord, to take responsibility for our repentance.